needing those today? Happy Mother's Day. I want to start off with a few stories, a story, and it starts off with this. A mother was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin 5 and Ryan 3. The boys began to argue over who would get the first pancake, but the mother saw this as an opportunity for a moral lesson. She said, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake, I can wait. Kevin turned toward his younger brother and said, Ryan, you be Jesus. <laughs> and now for an evening prayer for mothers everywhere. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray for sanity to keep. For if some peace I do not find, I'm pretty sure I'll lose my mind. I pray I find a little quiet, far from the daily family riot. May I lie back not to have to think about what they've stuffed down the sink, or who they're with, or where they're at, or what they're doing to the cat. I pray for time all to myself. Did something just fall off a shelf? To cuddle in my nice soft bed, oh no, another goldfish dead. Some silent moments, for goodness sake, did I just hear a window break? And that I need not cook or clean, well, heck, I've got the right to dream. Yes, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray my wits about me keep. But as I look around, I know I must have lost them long ago. A few quick Proverbs, starting with Proverbs 10.1. And I'll just go through these. They're only one-liners. I'll go through them quickly. Uh, it says, and we've covered this one, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Proverbs 15.20. You'll see a pattern here. A wise man makes a father glad, but a foolish son, foolish man despises his mother. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. I had the good fortune or the benefit to be involved in a program that Middlesex County is doing. It's a juvenile justice intervention program and we were supposed to guard our juveniles from South Brunswick, and they brought from all around the county to this place. And one of the keynote speakers was a Superior Court judge, and I found him very interesting. He said to the kids in the room, because this was, kids got in trouble with the law, and it was kind of a, an intervention before they get into the court systems. And of course, the idea was to prevent them. But the judge said to the kids, and he was really good connecting with them, he said, you realize that when you go to jail, or if you go to jail, you bring your mother and your father and your grandmother and your grandfather and people who love you with you to jail. Don't just think about yourself. There's other people involved. I thought that was neat. See, a mother's love is a sacrificial love. And that's why when we see a mom on television harming her child, we get angry when we see that on the news. Why? Because it's not natural. It goes against the grain of what a mother is supposed to be. But when we speak of mothers, we also have to include others that have stepped into that role. Grandmothers sometimes raise the kids, aunts, foster mothers, spiritual moms, sisters. I even know a family who raised an infant because the mother was so sick that they raised the infant for several months. They were stand-in mothers to that infant. But the good news is the woman got better and they were able to give the child back. But 
even looking at the Bible, the Bible gives honorable mention to Lois and Eunice, the grandmother and mother who molded one of the greatest first century preachers, Timothy, Paul's protege. And, you know, I, I said this last year, and probably um, the moms could nuzzle their husbands or kind of elbow them, but there was a study that said what a mother was worth and all that she does. And I think to the tune of $90,000 just for what a mother does at home. It's pretty impressive. And then, of course, a mother who uh, goes to work is worth even more than that, right? But even today in, in modern society, in our enlightened society, sometimes uh, stay-at-home moms are looked down upon. But you know what? That's a great contribution that stay-at-home mothers have. Right? And, and it's understandable. You know, it's a, it's a selflessness and a sacrifice that most in our society aren't familiar with. I think of my wife, and um, my wife humorously put a little bio when she was asked about what she does. And she said of herself, I maintain order, health, mental balance, and sanitation in the household. May I also add, I'm a professional shopper, groomer, and landscaper as well as hairdresser and personal assistant to the guys in the house. You know, you get to know me through the pulpit, but most of you don't know my wife unless you're in the venue of where she teaches, right? Or you've developed a friendship with her. My wife is a brilliant person, very smart woman, but a lot of her brilliance is kind of covered over in the mundane of cooking and cleaning and doing laundry. Now, I don't force her to do that. I don't want to get the moms to get mad at me here. It's a choice that she's made right about raising our son and staying home but again this is, a, this is a brilliant woman who's humble enough to allow a lot of that to get covered over by the mundane she, things she does in life and i just want to encourage you moms again even spiritual moms and you, you fit into those roles too to pour of yourself and give to someone else and not even always expecting some payback but certainly there'll be uh, heavenly and eternal rewards uh, for you so I just want to ask all the, anyone who's ever stepped into any of these roles to stand. We'd like to thank you, recognize you, and pray for you. Come on, stand up. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you so much for the contribution of these ladies. Lord, whatever role it was that they fit into, you've used them for your appointed purpose to be Jesus to somebody else in a sacrificial, selfless role, Lord, to pour into other folks, Lord. So, Lord, we thank you, and we, we praise you, Lord, and we praise you for the way you've done this, Lord. And also, we pray for these ladies, and whatever they do, that they would be open to your leading in the future. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, the last time we finished up the first chapter in the book of James, and today we're going to start with chapter 2. And this is where James gives a warning, oddly enough, against partiality or discrimination. Verse 1, James chapter 2. He said, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality or favoritism. In my Bible, this section is headed, quote, faith removes discrimination, or bias, or prejudice, or favoritism, or racism, or preferences. Whatever word, there's actually a lot of, if you look at the thesaurus, 
you can find synonyms and metonyms and there's really a long list of words that can fit into this category. I'm going to keep with the context of what he's saying, but also for our society, I'd like to broaden it for things that we deal with in our society today. These are words that may be offensive in some ways in civilized society. Well, you heard it right here. God does not condone this type of action. And this is what I think is beautiful about God's word because those who scoff at the Bible have never read it. The Bible says, God says, listen, I've created everyone to be equal. You all look different. You all have different qualities. You all have different gifts, but you should treat each other equally. I did, I've made the diversity things for, you know, like kind of flavors of ice cream. It's kind of neat. You know, it's, there's just so much out there, but we're all supposed to treat each other equally. Even in the opening of the Declaration of Independence, written by Thomas Jefferson in 1776, recognized what they thought the Creator's desires were as follows, quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. The problem is, is when men start to disregard God's word and start instituting their own ideas on how to treat their fellow human beings made in God's image. He says, don't hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. As believers, we need to be fair, equal, and just to everyone. But if we, listen, I don't want to present an impossible picture here. When we're in the spirit, we do these things but we're also sinners, and sometimes we fall short, and if we think about it, we have fallen short in this area. Partiality is comprised of two Greek words. The first one is receiving, and the second one is face, or to a lesser extent, person, or putting them together. Partiality means that you're a respecter of persons, or literally, a respecter of a person's superficial qualities. Not looking at the heart here. 1 Samuel 16 says that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In John 7.24, Jesus said, do not judge according to appearance, but make a right judgment. And we're going to cover a whole host of topics today that deal with this issue. You look at nepotism, the proverbial, the brother-in-law gets the job or the promotion over the qualified people because he's the brother-in-law, right? You look at a situation with friends. These are my circle of friends. Anyone out of that circle, I don't have to say hello to, I don't have to be nice to, because here's my circle of of friends. Hopefully it doesn't happen in the church. Economic, which is what we're going to discuss today, and I'll, I'll bring that out. Physical appearance, it's a big category. And also ethnicity, for or against. Success and talents. Well, who doesn't want to hang out with the successful and talented people? It's a weird kind of heart issue where you think maybe some of that's going to rub off on you, right? Or popularity, hanging out with the popular people. I find that high school behavior often carries into adulthood, and sadly, it carries into the church. What is popularity? Somebody's whims? We sometimes develop exclusive groups and cliques within Christendom because of these preferences. Now, James is going to focus on one particular dichotomy, but like I said, I'm going to expand it, starting with verse 2. He says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, 
You sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become evil or judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So this particular favoritism or bias that James is speaking of is economic. It has to do with status. Give you a little background. So you, the background always helps to really understand what's being brought out here in the scripture. Christianity started out really as a Jewish sect, but it also attracted the poor and the slaves. Why? Because they had nothing else in this world. And a promise of freedom and eternal riches was certainly attractive. And of course, their hearts went with it. It wasn't just... Um, uh, just surface. But understand this, that in the early church, it was not very impressive by worldly standards. 1 Corinthians 26, I'm just going to read a few verses. The Apostle Paul says this, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base or the lowly things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no flesh should glory in his presence. Back then, some wealthy and influential people became believers as God prohibits no one from coming to the cross. But some fellowships went out of their way to accommodate the rich and famous. Now, understand this. In verse 2, the word assembly is the Greek word synagogue. Literally, it means bringing together. But in English, of course, it sounds like we get the word synagogue. Now, synagogue really could, could be a generic term for meeting or assembly. Historically, after the destruction of the temple, the Jews needed a place to worship. They needed a place to read the scrolls and pray. So these little local synagogues popped up. It was a good answer for the destruction of the temple. And they become very popular. Now, the problem was, was that over time, you know, God starts something really good, but man always seems to pervert it. Over time, this is a historical fact, the wealthy, the, uh, the popular, the, uh, the influential in society would be seated next to the Hebrew scrolls. And the people who came in and weren't dressed as nice or they knew that they were kind of lowly, they would get sat in the back. And this carryover tradition came into the church, unfortunately. And of course, James is rebuking that. Now, this made it harder for the wealthy to become humble. And of course, it was something God despised. And the result was it was a two-tiered societal status system that was brought into the church. And we're going to address that. We're going to table that for a moment, go through, through a few verses and see where that fits in today. Today we identify the rich and famous through media, internet, photographs, published assets. But back then, you can see verse 2 and 3, the way to identify a wealthy person was their attire. There was certain type of clothing, there was certain type of dyes that were used, that if a person came in wearing this, you would say that person is wealthy. 
He talked about rings. There was a jewelry issue. You know, they had bling, and certain bling would tell you that the, okay, um, the person was wealthy. And certainly, they probably had an entourage, bodyguards, so they wouldn't get robbed, and a community reputation. So when this person came into the assembly, it was obvious that this person was wealthy. Verse 4, he says, have you not shown partiality or favoritism in this instance? In this instance, it's a sin of the heart. Now, understand this, that in this particular example, of course, the poor man, he didn't do anything wrong. You know, he's the victim in a sense. But don't make the mistake. The rich man in this instance is not the sinner. There's no sin cast in this instance to the rich man. The sin is cast to those observing these two folks, making a judgment in their mind, separating them and elevating them or lowering the other based on this outward appearance. So the sin is on the believers. All right? James is really rebuking them here. He says, you make yourself an evil judge over these two men by the way you determine who gets which type of treatment. Now, evil judges, corrupt judges, back then and today are swayed, right, if you're going to bribe me as a judge, it better be worth my while. You better, you know, make sure you grease my palm so if I get in trouble, it's certainly worth it. You've, been, you've made yourself evil judges. These judges would sit there back then, and if the person gave them enough of a bribe, they would rule in their favor. It's something that God really despised. More important point is deep-seated sins of the heart. Now, sometimes you hear the expression, don't go there. Today I'm going to say, let's go there. Let's challenge our consciences. Let's challenge our thinking. Let's think of a time where we, don't call it out please, where we may have judged somebody by appearance because we've all done it because we're sinners. That's why we need Jesus. Well, there's the obvious issue, skin color. Have we judged people on both sides based on skin color? Okay, that's, that's an issue. What about what we consider unattractive versus attractive? And again, it's really in the eye of the beholder. But if somebody walks in and we consider them unattractive or completely unattractive in our mind, would we not bother to say hello or even think about being friends with that person? Now let's flip it over because the sword does cut both ways. What about attractive people? What if someone is so stunning, be it male or female? You ever hear the expression, well, they must not have anything upstairs. Why is it so hard to believe that somebody could be attractive and also smart? Maybe it's a jealousy issue. Well, I don't have both of those, so they must be dumb as a stump, <laughs> right? So come on, people do this in society. We assume that anyone we see on the pages of a magazine who's attractive is a dummy, right? It, it's not a good thing. Wealth, I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be wealthy because then I wouldn't know who was a sycophant versus who was really my friend, you see? And if I was wealthy, I wouldn't let anybody know about it. What about being the pastor? Hey, Pastor Joe, I'd like to be friends with the pastor. What if tomorrow, not because of sin, I decided I don't want to do this anymore? First of all, Anthony will have a heart attack. <laughs> Would you still be my friend? Would you still talk to me? I'm not the pastor anymore. I don't have the, I don't have the title. Did, did, did that just lessen my status in your eyes? These are good things to think about. What about who looks like a criminal? It's easy for us to assume the big burly guy with the leather vest and the ZZ top beard and the tattoos up and down his arm and he was on a, a Harley, he must be the criminal, right? I have a, uh, my nephew's father is a black man with a goatee and dreadlocks 
and he wears a hoodie. And you know what? Some people might be put off by his appearance, but I got to tell you, he won't hurt you. He's one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. It's interesting. And would we assume that the cute little petite mom could never do anything wrong, right? You see that somebody does a crime and the newscaster goes out to the neighborhood and they say, oh, she was such a sweet little thing. Oh, I guess she's not a sinner yet because she looks good on the outside. They could be little ragers. You never know. You know what I'm saying? Let's go a little bit deeper. <laughs> Ted Bundy, he was able to murder well over 50 or 60 women. Why? You ever see him? Handsome guy, articulate, charismatic. He could have been a preacher, but he decided to go in another route, right? And I say that facetiously. He was able to lure so many women into his trap because they looked at him and said, he's nice to look at. I wouldn't even mind dating him. And he killed them. So people looked at him, made a determination by his outward appearance, and what happened? Horrible crimes were committed. He actually represented himself in court. A very smart guy. I saw an episode of Cops, and some of you may say, if you're off duty, why would you watch Cops? <laughs> I learned a lot. <laughs> a little old lady in her 80s, sweet little old grandma with the spectacles. She gets arrested for drunk driving. Cop puts her in the back of the car. She's handcuffed. She's screaming at him at the top of her lungs. She's cursing at the cop, spitting at him, calling every name in the book, any curse word you could imagine. She, I'm looking at this, and I'm like blown away. But I bet you when she comes to court, she's got her little granny dress with the flowers on and her hair pulled back in the bun and her little spectacles on, maybe with a cane, right? Maybe brings the judge some chocolate chip cookies. I just baked them, Your Honor. Boy, that cop doesn't have a prayer if he didn't have the video camera, does he? That big, mean, burly cop, he treated me so bad. Why? Because we'll look at that type of person and assume that maybe they've arrived at some plateau and they're no longer sinners. They couldn't possibly have done wrong. Shame on us. And as believers, shame on us even more for judging by appearances. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who loved him? James is saying, guys, you know what you just did in the church? With your thought and your actions, you just re-victimized this poor man. It's bad enough he doesn't have anything in this life. God has brought him to be rich in faith and spiritual gifts and eternal gifts. And what did you just do? You re-victimized this man. I like to pull what he's saying out of the scripture because it really cuts to the heart. You've oppressed him. You've re-oppressed him in this life. But God made him free. God made him not feel so bad about himself and the fact that he couldn't take a bath or he couldn't get nice clothing. And what did you just do by putting him in the back? He rebukes them. I want to meet James when I get to heaven. He's a pretty fiery guy. Verse 6. Now, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. Understand, part of this is cultural. Before the fall of Jerusalem, the class struggle between rich and poor started to heat up. And there was a lot of poor, some rich, and very little, if any, middle class. Sort of where New Jersey is going. But there were periods of great class struggle, and what would happen was, historically, the wealthy would receive even more power by sapping everything 
out of the folks that had very little money, land, uh, through usury, high interest rates, calling in loans unexpectedly, and dragging these folks into corrupt courts. So they would, the rich would get richer, and the poor would be more oppressed. So you see frivolous lawsuits and eminent domain. Maybe society hasn't changed that much. Verse 7. Come on, you're supposed to laugh at that. There you go. Verse 7. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you were called? Now this could mean they either, because they were so relied on their riches that they outwardly blasphemed Christ, or maybe through their worship of, of money that they blasphemed Christ. Not really sure. Or both. Verse 8 and 9. Now he says this. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. Now that was quoted right out of Leviticus 19:18. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Loving God, Jesus said, was the greatest commandment. It certainly embodied the first four out of the ten of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus said the second greatest commandment is similar to the first, but definitely takes it on a lower scale because loving God is the most important. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That really embodies the lower six of the Ten Commandments. You understand? So between the loving God and loving your neighbor, you've really covered the Ten Commandments, which were maybe a microcosm of the entire law in a sense. Now, Jesus demonstrated, because, of course, the astute of society wanted to know who was my neighbor because they wanted to know who could be on the X list that I don't have to love. And Jesus basically, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, said even your enemy can be your neighbor. So he, you know, you're sorry you asked at this point because pretty much anybody can be your neighbor. Samaritans and Jews, there was a, a great um, um, aggression or tension between the two groups. First John 4 says, if we say we love God and hate our brother, we lie. We don't tell the truth. Leviticus 19.15 says, Judge with impartiality, without favoritism, do not pervert justice. Therefore, if we show partiality, bias, favoritism, even today, we are breaking both of the greatest commandments and breaking the Ten Commandments in a sense. I say again, folks, does that happen today? Does it happen in society? Is there favoritism shown to the rich and famous? Let's take this in context and let's take it in a broader sense. Mel Gibson made several hundred million dollars off of the Passion of the Christ, off of mainly evangelical Christians. He quickly became the spokesperson for the Christian movement. And I've heard people say, we finally have a star. We finally have someone famous who speaks for us. I guess Jesus Christ, God's word, Peter, James, Jude, Paul, wasn't enough. We needed a star. Oh, and then came the DWI, the anti-Semitic leanings, and now his divorce and possibility that he was having an adulterous relationship for years. A little embarrassing to us Christians, isn't it? I think the Christian community is, is guilty of not vetting their spokespeople. We are so quick to throw somebody up there and saying, finally somebody rich and famous that speaks for us. Now we have um, Miss California, Carrie Prejean. Everybody's jumped on that bandwagon. Oh, and then the nude photos arose. Well, a little embarrassing there, isn't it? What's the rush? What's the rush? We need a star. We need someone handsome. We need someone beautiful. We need someone famous, wealthy, talented. We need someone, when they go on Larry King, to articulate our side. That's what the folks are saying in their hearts. What God has provided, 1 Corinthians, that I just read, the lowly, the weak, the base, that's not good enough. God 
I understand that, but we need somebody to Christianize Hollywood. That would be neat, I agree. But it would also be neat to Christianize Camden. There's a lot of people suffering there, a lot of people uh, having difficulties. And I tell you, I would just as be thrilled if Camden was Christianized over Hollywood being Christianized. Again, the context is we're talking about wealth and political clout. Well, if, if we could look at that in a, a fellowship perspective, then in that case, you don't have to wait on God. And that should be convicting to those who only love the wealthy for what they can provide. Really, looking at the wealthy as a meal ticket. These, these people were guilty of that. You might say, well, they're elevating the rich and the poor, poor man. No, the poor, rich man. They were treating the poor man bad, but they were also treating the rich man bad because they had a, a, a two-tiered system. No discipline for this guy. No teaching him how to be humble. We're just going to raise him up and leave him the way he was in the world so he doesn't grow as long as he keeps giving us money. That's what it comes down to. We haven't seen that today. Ministries targeting wealthy geographical areas. I've seen some of this stuff. It's disgusting. But where can we plant a church? Hmm. Where are the wealthy areas in New Jersey? I think that'll do well for us. Where's trusting the Lord? Right? How does that fit into the demographics? Shamelessly cozying up to the wealthy when the church needs money. Again, the wealthy need to be deserved for who they are and not to be a meal ticket. Warren Wiersbe said something very profound on society. I love this. He said, we cater to the rich to get something from them, and we avoid the poor because they embarrass us. That's evil either way, isn't it? My question is, what if a sports star walked into our fellowship, our little fellowship, big great sports figure walked into our fellowship? First of all, I wouldn't even recognize him because I'm not into sports. Everybody would be making noise. I'd be like, what's going on? You know, what's, the, what's the commotion? It's the same thing. Back then, it was the rich man. We could see him. He had the rings. He had the entourage. He had the apparel. What if Derek Jeter, right? <laughs> what if Derek Jeter walked in and wanted to be saved? I, I would probably hang my head if, if my staff fawned all over him. I would probably be very disappointed, right? If they haven't treated somebody off the street the same way as Derek Jeter. That would bother me. What are the heart motives for showing partiality and prejudice? And there's, a, there's a million of them. Well, on the negative side, and we can, again, now we're painting with a broad brush again. Someone is not like you. Someone doesn't look like you. There's a fear component. So that's that negative prejudice. You stay away from them because they don't look like you. And you don't, you don't understand their culture or anything, and you don't try because there's a fear aspect. Two, positive. You know the word prejudice could actually be positive. If I see my son playing sports, I'd be prejudiced for my son because I want him to win because he's my son. So there's a positive and negative aspect to the word prejudice. Most people don't know that. Selfish motives, in the case of the wealthy, hoping to get a tangible benefit from that person. Let's make him comfortable. Let's seat him next to the scrolls. Let's everybody fawn over him. Get him something to drink. Get him something to eat. Let's hope that he stays here because it's good for, him, for us if he does stay here. Prejudice favoritism in a positive sense. That same person, maybe they can benefit our fellowship. You know, it's a way to not have to trust God because now you're trusting in what the world has provided and you've kind of eliminated him out of the equation. Popularity, I mean, there's so many different reasons why we're prejudiced and why we choose to treat people a certain way. It's because it can gain, we can gain something from it. Verse 10. 
For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Basically, and I'm going to paraphrase him, you can't be selective with which of God's laws we choose to obey. Deuteronomy 27, 26. If I break one, I'm guilty of all of them. Isn't that the reason why we need Jesus? Isn't that the reason why we need a Savior? Because we can't keep all of God's laws perfectly. I'd rather be covered under the blood of Christ than try to stand before... I don't need Jesus. I'm going to stand before God on my own merits. I'm not doing that. You won't see me doing that. I'm not that stupid. And since we're supposed to be following Christ, we better obey His commandments, and in particular, the second, the two greatest commandments. And favoritism and partiality is completely forbidden. Now, this whole thing about... Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Almost as like rock, paper, scissors. You know, one is greater than the other. But in a nutshell, God has always desired to employ mercy wherever judgment has been deserved. Isn't that the gospel message? We all deserve death. All right? And if somebody here doesn't think that, you're arrogant. You're prideful. Because none of us have the ability to stand before God and say, I've done a great job, you, you, that your heaven wouldn't be complete without me there. We all deserve judgment. But God said, okay, I have to complete justice. I'm the God of justice, of judgment. How do I get around this and still have these folks be reconciled to me? And the plan was to send Jesus Christ, who was perfect, sinless, spotless, into the world to you know, be born a miraculous birth, live a sinless life, and substitutionary die for our sins and shed his blood for the remission of our sins. That's how we get into the kingdom. So mercy triumphs over judgment by the cross. Judgment is still preserved because the judgment, unfortunately, for Christ fell on him. All my sins were put on that cross. So there's the judgment and the justice. But the mercy is that Jesus died, took that, and conquered those sins and conquered death. I get mercy, right? But for those who don't show mercy, then mercy won't show, be shown to them. A little scary in the New Testament, starting with the Lord's Prayer, and even going into Matthew 18 in the New Testament, this parable of the unforgiving servant, the one who showed no mercy, mercy wasn't shown to him. So even as believers, it's very important in the New Testament that we show mercy. Okay? Good lesson there. So, at the end of the day, um, when this is all over, the question is, how many people want to be discriminated against? Nobody, not me. Passed over for a promotion? Treated as a second-class citizen? Because of an attribute having nothing to do with who I am on the inside? Not me. And now let's talk about, we said, have we ever judged somebody or thought these thoughts about people? How many of us have ever been the recipient, before we even open our mouth, Someone has looked at us and made a judgment about us. It's happened to me. It's not fair, is it? It hurts. Well, don't do that to somebody else. How many people want to be looked down upon for the way they look? Maybe things that they can't change. The way they dress. What they can afford. Not me. You even see little kids. Little kids can be such mean little sinners, man. You, <laughs> you watch the interactions of little kids and they're so hurtful. 
Now they got the internet and, and all the different MySpace and Facebook, and little kids are just, they torture each other, you know? It's just horrible to watch. And some of them make fun of each other because they don't have name brands on their clothing, and I've seen it. And adults do the same thing. I've often said that adults are just larger children, you know? When rap was clean, I used to listen to rap when I was younger, it was clean. Run DMC, it was, I don't even remember the song, but how many people remember Run DMC? <laughs> there was one line in the song where he said, you know, Calvin Klein ain't no friend of mine, I don't want nobody's name on my behind. <laughs> I love that. I just, I don't remember the rest of the song, but that song, that verse, or line really did it for me. But this, you know, I didn't go with the movements and everything and hit it, Dave, Charlie, no, but. But this, they say I woke you up too. This is a good heart check to examine ourselves and see why we treat or how we treat others favorably or unfavorably. Because the Bible indicates that we will, believers, get this, we're the king's kids. We, we covered Revelation. We covered uh, what Paul said in his letter to the Corinthians. One day, folks, as believers, we will judge angels. We will have some role in the judgment. So not, not for nothing, but we, we better get it right now and not judge superficially. And that's hard, but being in the spirit, I believe we can do it. One thing that I pray, big prayer before I go to work is, Lord, help me come back alive, okay? <laughs> but in addition to that, and just as important, I'm like, Lord, help me not to grab the wrong person. When I go and I do what I do at work, and I, I make judgments, I make decisions, otherwise they'd fire me. You have to make decisions. Help me to judge righteously. Help me to make the right decisions when I'm on the job because it can affect somebody's life. Jesus said in John 7, 24, make the right judgment. Hopefully we will start to learn to judge not according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there's just so many truths in your word. There's just so much meat here, Lord. You talk about...